So we are dismissing children for Children's Church. That's ages 4 through 1st grade. And you can head out this north door. Mr. Kevin Wenzel. Avery Kluth taking care of our little ones. Just a real quick um, statement about the uh, God Loves You Tour at Soldiers Field. It is a park, so you're going to need to bring a chair or a blanket of some sort that's in our bulletin, but just just so you know, there's not going to be any chairs provided, so just pretend it's going to be a park festival and, and be aware of that. So that last song we just sang, It Is Well With My Soul, I don't know if you know the history behind it. It's written by a man named Horatio Spafford, a man who was a Christ follower, sending his family across the Atlantic, and he lost almost everyone save for his wife. But that was his response of worship to the Lord. It is well with my soul because I am in Christ. That is a supernatural reaction that has to be rooted in who Christ is. So try this on for size. Life is hard. Then you die. Life is hard. Then you die. That's the attitude, unfortunately, of some people in our world, it's kind of a jaded, kind of a cold statement about life. And there's some truth to it. Because, let's face it, there are times when life is hard. It can be hard. And it's, it's hard at every, every stage. Here's my attempt to just kind of highlight this. And some of them are superficial. But some are real. Okay. So as a toddler, life is hard because everyone's picking you up and telling you what to do. As a primary school student, you're entering into this place, you're trying to learn the rules, you're trying to figure out how, to, how do I do these things like read and math, and if I'm not good at it, well, eventually everybody knows that because the teacher calls on me to try and perform in public. And all the other kids are weird, by the way. Then I get to middle school. My body's changing I'm not sure I like myself. I wonder who I am. I get to high school. And maybe I've kind of decided who I think I am. But that's tenuous at best. And all these adults are saying, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You have no idea. Then you get to college. And it's like middle school all over again. You're trying to figure out who you are. And you may have been an athlete or a, you know, a brainiac or whatever. But at college, there are 100 people just like you. You're not special anymore. And you have to figure out what your major is. You feel trapped. What if I go to my, my wrong major? And then just the amount of school debt you have to acquire just to go to a university. Then you graduate. And then you're having a hard time getting a job in that major that you just took. I mean, you know, art history just doesn't have a lot of, a lot of uh, opportunities out there. And even if you do get that job, you kind of wonder, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? Am I trapped in this? And then I still have an amazing amount of debt I need to deal with. And then if you didn't go to college, what then do you do then? Because isn't that the pathway to success? Are you not as smart as the rest of everyone else? 
not as educated. And then if you're single, you're dealing with loneliness. And you're asking the question, who will I marry? And then you start overthinking and saying, what if I marry the wrong person? What do I do then? And then you do marry. And you start learning to live with another person. It's not as easy as you thought it was. Your own sin starts getting exposed, and the bliss you thought marriage would bring, well, it's good, but it's not as good as I thought it would be. And then you have children, and then you discover your life is not your own. If you're a woman, especially, you discover your body is not your own anymore, and your sleep is deprived completely. And how you treated the first child in raising them, it's not working with the second child. There's no magic formula. How do I deal with that? Then your kids are in the teens, and they love you, but they don't want to be around you anymore. Right? They want to distance yourself themselves from you. You're not as cool anymore. Your IQ has dropped severely. And then they graduate, and you're an empty nest. And it's, it's kind of nice, actually. You've got a little more space. But if you've not been paying attention to your marriage, you find out maybe you're a stranger to your spouse. And then your own parents are starting to age, and you have to start helping them, coming alongside of them. And then you're a senior citizen. You've lost your stamina. You've lost your strength. You're losing your eyesight, your hearing, your memory. And society marginalizes you. They don't value you. And you feel it. And that's just a normal American life I laid out to you. I didn't include financial struggles, health and mental health struggles, disabilities, relational conflict, job and workplace challenges, accidents, national disasters, sin, abuse, and crime. And then if you're a Christ follower, you know, we have good news for everybody, but not everybody wants to hear that. In fact, they even try and punish you sometimes if you bring it their way. Life is hard. Then you die? Is that the cold, hard truth of that's all there is, folks? Not according to God's Word. Not according to the good news of the Gospel. And certainly the Scriptures do affirm life can be hard. That certainly is true, especially if you're following Jesus. But in those difficult times, in those trials, in those tribulations... God indeed wants to meet us. He wants to meet us with himself. So if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to flip it open to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be. We're starting a new series in that letter. When I think the major theme of that is grace proves strong in weakness. But today, here's what I want you to see. That the God that we serve the God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all comfort. He is the God of all comfort. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in the first 11 verses of this first chapter. So if you want to read along with me or behind me, um, you can certainly do that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed in sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but God, who raises the dead, and He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into this word of comfort today. Lord Jesus, as we have sung earlier, we say hallelujah. We say praise the living Lord of, of all creation. What a Savior. What a Savior who has come after us to make us your own. And even in our sorrows, even in our tribulations and troubles, you want to meet us. So open the eyes of our heart to this good word today, this word of comfort that we may receive it, and that we may bring comfort to others. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So this is the second letter to Corinth. A few years back, I believe it was uh, in uh, October of 2016 through December of 2017, we went through the first letter of Corinthians, which was titled, grace in the mess. And it was a mess that Paul was dealing with. But some believe this is actually the third letter that Paul brings to the church at Corinth. And we're not going to get into the life situation, the background too much today. We'll talk more about that next week because we just need to get immediately into what Paul is saying today. But here's the big picture of what I want you to see today. That we see in Christ that God is the God who is the God of all comfort. In Christ we see God who is the God of all comfort. And we're going to see how that was true for Paul and his companions, and we're going to see how it is true for us today, for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want you to see in these first couple verses is He is the God who has not left us alone. He is the God who has not left us alone. You see, the biblical narrative is this. God 
made men and women in His image. To have relationship with Him. To be His crown of creation. To walk with Him in the cool of the day, face to face. And then we as a race chose to rebel. We chose to do our own thing and we were separated from Him. We were cut off from the face of God. And the rest of the Scripture is really God's story about how He pursues us to restore us to Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately, who is the Messiah, the Christ. But when Jesus comes, lives this life, lives a life that you and I can't live, He goes to the cross and pays a penalty that we can't pay, and then He rises from the dead and conquers sin and death to conquer a foe we can't conquer. Remember, this is coming out of a Jewish context. And so originally, even the original disciples were going, he's a Jewish Messiah. He's a Jewish Messiah. He's a Jewish Savior, if you will. And some were debating that. Was he really that or was he not? And one of the persons who said, no, he's not, is a man named Saul of Tarsus. We meet him in chapter 8 of Acts, and we see what happens to him in in chapter 9. But as Saul of Tarsus introduces himself in this letter, he is Paul, the apostle of Christ. Apostle means sent one by the will of God. If you know his story, originally he is a violent uh, um, enemy of Christ. He's putting his people in jail, and then Jesus apprehends him, revealing himself to, to Paul and changing him and assigning him the mission, you are going to be my sent one, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to kings and governors and to the highest seats of power. Paul, you're going to be my sent one. And by the way, you're going to suffer along the way. But you're going to be my man because I've apprehended you, you are mine, and I have not left you alone. I have not left you alone to be my enemy. I've turned you around, I've repurposed your life for my purposes. I've opened your eyes so that you can see me. Those of us who know Christ in this room, what was that moment? when Jesus opened your eyes so you could see him for the first time. Like, oh, you really are the Savior. You really are the one I need. Because that's what happened to Paul. And even though he was slightly embarrassed, slightly like, wow, did I mess up? He received Jesus' grace. You see, when the Lord opened your eyes. He said, I have not left you alone. You are mine. I want you, I want you to be my sent one. And then we meet Timothy. Timothy, our, our brother. If you know Timothy's history, he is born of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Now, if you know anything about cross-cultural stuff, Sometimes when you're in the middle of that, you're not accepted by either side of the family. 
by the Jewish people or the Greek people. You are just this half-breed, and everybody treats you like it. But then the gospel comes to Derby, as we see in Acts, I believe, chapter 16. And Timothy is a believer, and suddenly in Christ he is no longer a half-breed. He is a full brother. And he becomes Paul's prodigy. He is, he is the one who stands by Paul all through the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to whom Paul writes his final words. But he is no longer a half-breed. He's no longer a reject. He is a full brother. And maybe you feel like Timothy. You're not accepted by those you're close to. You feel like you never quite fit in. But in Christ, you are a full brother. You are a full sister and called for his purposes. And then to a group of people. He goes on to the church in Corinth. And remember, if you know the story in Acts, it is Paul that comes to Corinth and plants the church with Aquila and Priscilla. Raises up this church really in a mostly Gentile metropolitan situation. He says, to the church in Corinth, Church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. And if you're not familiar with the term Achaia, it's, it's, it's classical Greek for basically turning in the Greek region. In the Iliad, the Achaeans or the Achaeans are the ones who go against Troy. So just so you're one, if you're wondering what that word means, that's what that's about. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are mostly Gentiles. These are people who had no clue about the God of Abraham. They were what we call today unchurched folk. They had no idea. They were strangers to the covenants that were in God's Old Covenant, Old Testament. But now the good news of Christ has come to them. These are strangers. Remember, there was a question, is this... Messiah only for the Jews, or is he for everybody? And that is the good news that Paul gets to bring to these people. A message that Jesus himself sent him to them. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, to to, uh, Corinth. And they have received grace. That is unmerited favor and became hymns by faith in him. And they have received peace. That is reconciliation to a holy God through Christ by faith in him. Can you just see, just even within these first few words of this letter, God's heart of grace and compassion for the ones he's addressing. An enemy a half-breed, outsiders and strangers. He has not left them alone. It's not just life is hard, then you die. The living God is reaching out. He's on a mission to reach men and women for himself. And we are his people. Are we going to cooperate with that mission?
I want to ask the question, because I don't know where everyone's at here. Do you know this Savior who's pursuing you? Do you know this one who wants to bring comfort to you? And he has not left you alone. If you have breath in your lungs, he's still pursuing you. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That is you. Have you believed in him? Are you drawing to the love that he wants to give you, the life he wants to give you, the eternal life he wants to give you? Today, maybe God is trying to open your eyes to who he is and give you the life that you don't have in yourself. Listen along some more today. This God has not left us alone. He's pursued us. And we can see his compassion. So number two, this God of all comfort, he comforts us in our trials. Because everyone faces trials. Verse 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Again, verse 4. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. And those, those troubles may be a, a wide range of things. It might be you know, relational discord. It might be true crisis and catastrophe. Your life is in danger. But the truth of the matter is, in following Christ, there is no promise of a trouble-free life. There's no promise of that. Because this life is not the end goal. In fact, Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, he says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome this world. And I'm promising you my comfort, even as you go through those things. So here's the question we may be asking. How is it that God comforts us? How is it that God comforts us? Verse 5, for just as, though we, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. You see, the truth of the matter is, in following Christ... We may suffer some of the troubles, some of the suffering He did. But here's one thing about Jesus in that. Is that Jesus is the Savior who has been there. Jesus is the Savior who has been there. And 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene on earth's history, in earth's uh, stage, this was written. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He entered into human history. He entered into our mess. So there's no way we can say, God, you have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to live this life. He entered into our pain And he was misunderstood, he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was falsely accused, he was mocked, he was stripped, he was beaten, he was crucified. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is the Savior who has been there. You know, I don't know if you've seen that ad campaign on television where it talks about marginalized people. And then, and then it says, yeah, Jesus was treated like that too. He gets us. And I, and I like that. Because Jesus can identify with, him, with us. But here's the question. Do we get Him? He gets us, but do we get Him? Of all that He did to come and pursue us. Because He is the Savior who has been there. He is that great high priest that Aaron read about, who was made like us, was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin. And he sits at God's right hand, and he intercedes for us. That we might come to the throne room of grace and find help in our time of need. He has categories, folks, for what we're going through. And that's a beautiful thing. But he's also, Jesus is a Savior who is not only been there, but always there. He is the Savior who's always there. He said in Matthew 28, 20, he said, and behold, or lo, I am with you always. Always. He reiterates what the Lord had said. In Deuteronomy 31, in chapter 13 of Hebrews 5, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You are never alone if you are in Christ. He is always there. He is always present. And His very presence even brings comfort. Think about this. When you were a kid and you scraped your knee or cut your finger, where did you want to be? You wanted to be in your parents' lap to be comforted, right? And When you sat down in mom or dad's lap, the pain didn't just immediately go away, right? But you were there because you were there with somebody who cares for you, who loves you. And somehow that diminished the pain and the suffering you were going through. It brought comfort. I think that's very true even when we suffer and we come and sit in the lap of our Heavenly Father, when we come to the Lord Jesus, our great Savior. And here's a truth, folks, that many of you who have been following Christ, you know for years. But I I just want to remind you of it, because maybe we don't like this truth. But we actually sense His presence and His nearness more in our sorrow, in our troubles, than we do in our prosperity and in our blessings. It's true. It's true. The Apostle Paul says, 
I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Psalm uh, 34.18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's just, there's just a presence about the Lord we realize so much more in our suffering than in our blessing and our prosperity. And it's not always fortunate, but it's where we grow in intimacy with Christ. It's a place where we grow in our intimacy with Christ. And probably because it's those moments we start to say, oh Jesus, this is what it was like for you. This is what you went through for me. And we see those one-for-one one things, whether they're being betrayed, or whether we're being abandoned, or whether we're just suffering pain physically. We sense His nearness. It's the truth of the old hymn, Draw Me Near. Draw me near to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me near to Your precious bleeding side. If you don't know that reality, that seems masochistic. But it really is a place of comfort. Even, even in those moments where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? We celebrate His suffering for us. And yet we sense His nearness, His closeness, His care, His comfort for us. And yes, He is the one who deliver us, delivers us from our perils. He is the one who who even deadly peril, verse, verse uh, 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. We're going to talk a little bit about those circumstances for Paul. But I don't know about you, but I look back on my life and sometimes I go, you know, the only reason I'm here alive today is by the grace of God. Because I did a lot of foolish things as a young man. I mean, there was one time where I thought I was going to be, make this cool fire escape out my, the third story of our house in Oakland, right? And this rope broke, and I fell three stories onto the top of a, of a sheet metal storage shed. And the thing was like this, and then it was like this. That broke my fall. I should have been injured. I should have been died if that wasn't there. But it was by the grace of God. And that was my own foolishness. Think about our brothers and sisters who face daily the threat to their lives just because of their faith. And unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns in our lifetime, you and I will face that final foe in death. But, the second half of verse 10 says, and He will deliver us again. And on Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. That hope is not wishful thinking. That hope is a guarantee that He will deliver us. He will deliver us. If you're in Christ, He will deliver you from death. And that is not a fairy tale, folks. Some people say, oh, you poor Christians. You're so deluded. No, it's, it's based upon 500 witnesses. It's, upon, it's based upon disciples who saw Him and went to their death saying, yes, He has risen. He has risen indeed. It's based upon 
a hostile witness in the Saul of Tarsus who has his life completely changed around when the resurrected Jesus reveals himself. It is not a fairy tale. It is a fact. And Jesus says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He or she who believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. That is the hope we have. That is the hope we're guaranteed so we can sing when He comes our glorious King. All His ransomed souls will bring. Come on, Nathan, remember the words. Then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is our hope. That is our hope. And again, I'm going to ask, do you know the Savior that comforts? The Savior that is your hope. The Savior that wants to meet you with Himself and give you life in Himself that you don't have. First John 5, 11 and 12 says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And that eternal life is in His Son. He or she who has the Son has life. He or she who does not have the Son does not have life. Do you have life? Do you have His life? If not, I want to pray for you at the end of this service. But here's another thing. We still live in a broken world. We still experience pain and trouble, but God never wastes anything. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Look at verse 4. Speaking of God the Father, who comforts us in all our troubles, listen to this, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you ever go through a trial or tribulation and you just kind of go in the the big picture, okay, what was that about? What is God trying to do? What's the lesson I'm supposed to learn? God harnesses this as we come alongside of people, as we've gone through pain, to come alongside of them as they go through pain. It's an opportunity for people to see Jesus with skin on in us and to point to the God they may not know, they may have no idea about. And it's an opportunity to comfort people with the comfort of Christ. That they see that you care and maybe see through you that God actually cares for them. I don't know about you, but I'm trying to take those opportunities to do that. There's a man who works at a local supermarket here. I see him quite often. And I notice one day he's limping. And I just say, hey, I noticed you're limping these days. What's, what's going on with you? Well, he starts to tell me that he's got, he's got tumors in the arch of his foot. And he's going to have surgery and have those things out. And they just might be cancerous. And so I just said, hey, I, I'm the pastor down in the neighborhood. I just want to tell you, I'm praying for you. And every time I go in, into the store, I check on that guy. I said, hey, what's going on? What's happening? And my prayer is that he sees 
the care of Christ in me. As he goes through that hard situation. But that's just me coming alongside of somebody and me not necessarily expressing the, the things I have suffered. But here's one of the cool things about our church and one of the hard things about our church. As we walk together, I have seen some of you suffer through the loss of a child in a miscarriage. And that is devastating. And I want to say, I'm not, I, in, in stating this, I don't want to exploit this one iota. But I want to tell you, you have an authenticity, you have an experience that you can speak into somebody's heart who's going through that as well, that I don't have, because that is not my life story. But you have an opportunity to speak hope, to speak life, even as you've wrestled with that. And it might just be you're just weeping with those who weep at that moment to comfort them, because you're not going to come up with a why. It's not going to happen. It's only in the mystery of God's wisdom that you will know that eventually. But you have an opportunity to comfort somebody who who needs the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for them to see that, that there is hope in Christ, that you can see your beloved baby once again at the resurrection. That's where the hope is, that this is not all there is. It's not life is hard, then you die. No, there is hope. And now I want to challenge our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Because we all, school's not a fun time. But middle schoolers, high schoolers, have you ever been excluded? Have you ever been made fun of? Have you ever been bullied? If that's so, you've suffered. You've suffered. And it's horrible. I'm going to tell you, I went through junior high and I hated it. It was like hell on earth. But God was gracious to get me through that time. But here's the thing I want to encourage you. You know, here's, here's the order of things. It's kind of a, a food chain of abuse. From the top to the bottom. And someone above you is abusing you, whether it's social strata or whatever, and then you turn around and abuse somebody else. You turn around and make fun of somebody else. You turn around and bully somebody else. Don't do that. Especially if you're in Christ. Stop it. Stop it and say, this is not what God intends for me, and this is not what God intends for the next person. You know what it's like. So maybe to reach out to that person who's being excluded. And at the very least, don't pass on the abuse. Don't pass on that, but actually have compassion for that person who's going through that. That's a very practical way you can comfort somebody in your, in your school situation. Have some self-awareness, even more so have some Christ awareness. How Jesus wants to be working through you. Number four, God uses discomfort to show us who, whom to look to. Verses 8 through 10. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despised, we despaired, excuse me, of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this has happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again, on whom we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. You see, when we're going through troubles, our temptation is to look to ourselves, our own resources, what we can see, what we know, what we can control. Maybe our hope is in our bank account, our education, science and technology, our relationships. Maybe it's our own street smarts to deal with things. Or maybe it's even in our citizenship. You know, being an American citizen has a lot of privileges. But all those things can be taken away and all those things can fail. And it seemed like they had for the Apostle Paul. He said, man, we felt like we received the sentence of death. We felt like we weren't even sure whether we wanted to live anymore. And maybe that was the riot in Ephesus. I don't know. But he came to the end of himself. And we at certain points, come to the end of ourselves. And all we have left is Christ. The care of the living God. And here's the question, folks. Is that sufficient for us? Is that enough? Paul states in verse 9, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so it is a death to self-reliance. But it is life to God dependence, who we need to navigate this life in joy and tribulation, and whom we need when it's all said and done. Jesus asks this very poignant question What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Our reliance has to be on Him and not ourselves. Indeed, the major theme of this letter is grace made strong in weakness. Paul says, "My grace." Jesus says to Paul, my grace is, is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Chapter 12, verse 9. And this is a reminder at the beginning of this letter that all of life in Christ is all of grace and all of God. When's the last time you, follower of Christ, came to the end of yourself? The end of your resources, the end of your intelligence, the end of whatever you thought you had going for you, and said, Jesus, you're all I got. But Jesus, you're all I need. That's where Paul's trying to go in our hearts and the lives of, of his people in Corinth. Last of all, praying for others makes us participants in God's comfort. Verse 11, you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You know, God doesn't need our prayers to enact comfort for you or for me or for others. But he calls us to pray. 
in order that it will engage our hearts for the things that engage his hearts, his heart. You see, God is trying to help us to care about the things that he cares about. And he's on a rescue mission, and he does take delight in his children, especially when they love and care for one another and, and for others. When we do weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And give thanks for answers for the comfort of others. When it's not about us, I can rejoice in the comfort that God is bringing you, brother or sister. It gives me joy. Paul was under great duress. He says, look, I need your prayers. And one of the things he was trying to teach this church was God dependence, not independence, even in praying for him. And as we find, we'll find out, Paul's a very interesting relation with, relationship with this church. But he's trying to show them, that the Corinthians, that they need to grow in their love for him, as we'll see. Paul is reminding them, he's reminding us, the benefit of knowing the God of all comfort. Folks, life is hard. It is. But that's not all there is. The God of comfort is there. And He wants to meet us with Himself, to comfort us, to help us comfort others, to depend on Him, and to have hope in Him that He is our ultimate deliverance. What a great thing to be reminded of. Let me pray for us, and Aaron, will you and the worship team come and close us? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this good word, this encouragement, and this humbling, Lord, because we are reminded that we are insufficient in ourselves to address all the troubles that come our way. But Lord Jesus, you said, in this world we will have trouble but we can take heart because you have overcome the world and you deliver us and you give us victory in yourself. Indeed, you are our rock and our cornerstone. And in you, we put our hope and our faith. Lord, if there's somebody out there who has yet to put their faith in you, I pray, Lord, for that person. And if that's you, I just want you to pray along with me in your heart these words. They're not magic words, but they're the expression of a sincere heart that wants to respond. Jesus, I need you. I realize that my life of rebellion and sin against you has alienated, against, alienated me against you. But I want to receive your gift of life. As you came to die for me on the cross, and you rose from the dead. So come into my life and change me. Make me your man, make me your woman. and Give me life that I don't have in myself. Give me the eternal life that I need. Give me your life as you come and make your home in my heart. And Lord Jesus, it's your name I pray these things. Amen.